This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Professor Brendan Crabb joined me. Brendan is the Director and CEO of the Burnett Institute, a medical research and public health institute based in Melbourne. Brendan reflects on how the pandemic has evolved. He addresses some of the myths and misinformation around COVID-19, its transmission and ways to stop its spread. He also addresses the long-term effects of COVID-19, which include long COVID. Brendan tells us what living with COVID really means. Then, Bruce Pascoe and Bill Gamage joined me. Bruce Pascoe is a Ewan, Bonnerong and Tasmanian man. Bruce is a writer and farmer. He is the author of many books, including his very well-known work, Dark Emu. In it, Bruce argues that pre-settlement Aboriginal agriculture and engineering was left out of the history books. Bill Gamage is a historian based at the Humanities Research Centre at the ANU. He is the author of several books, including The Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia, which explored how Aboriginal people have managed the land to their advantage for millennia, including using fire stick practices. Bill and Bruce joined me to discuss a book they've co-authored called Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. They look at the land care practices of First Nations peoples in relation to farming and fire. And finally, Rachel Withers, contributing editor to The Monthly, joined me to discuss the first week of the federal election campaign. I'm really delighted to be able to welcome onto the program today Professor Brendan Crabb. Now, Brendan is Director and CEO of the Burnett Institute in Melbourne, and he is also President of both the Australian Global Health Alliance and the Pacific Friends of Global Health, which are two bodies that advocate for better health equity. There are many other aspects to Brendan's experience and expertise. He is a microbiologist and a parasitologist, and he obviously advocates on a wide range of issues, uh, particularly public health issues and infectious diseases. And he's been a prominent figure in this COVID-19 pandemic. And regular listeners to this program certainly have said how much they appreciate hearing from experts like Brendan and, of course, um, our regular from the last couple of years, Professor Mary Louise McLaws. So I'm absolutely delighted to have Brendan join me today. Hi there, Brendan, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Amy. It's a great pleasure. I've just been really, really wanting to talk to you for quite a while, and I've had a whole list of questions and thoughts I wanted to ask you. So we're really going to be focusing on a whole range of topics in this conversation. It's going to be pretty wide ranging. And I think it's going to reflect not only the things that I've really wanted to know, but also things that listeners, everyone around me, I've noticed has kind of had a either misunderstanding around the information, there's been confusion a lot of the time around how this pandemic has evolved and what the virus is like and what its effects are and, you know, what kind of public health measures will be most effective. So these are the kinds of things that we'd like to touch on and I know that will be so valuable for everyone else. So I can't wait to get down to it. But first of all, maybe we'll just um, start with your personal perspective and experience of this pandemic. And everyone said it's like a one in a hundred year event. So it's, I guess, a big deal for someone in your position to be leading a big body, a public health body in this period. I wonder how have you found it, especially over the last two and a half years and how this situation has evolved so dramatically? 
you know, I teach pandemics. It's, it's, I don't do a lot of teaching anymore. I used to do it as a full-time job at University of Melbourne, and I still teach a module on pandemics. And every module starts with, you know what? It's, it's a when, not if question. You know, we will face another pandemic. But, you know, when it actually happened, I was still taken by surprise, you know, even as a person who's been saying that ad nauseum for as long as I have. So imagine if you didn't even live and breathe it, which of course most people haven't. You know, I live in Melbourne too, who's um, as a as a city that's um, you know born the brunt of it in, in Australia. We often talk about lockdown and and effects, and of course Melbourne's experienced more than most. Um, of course, many Australians didn't experience much lockdown at all. Um, you know, so we all experienced it very very differently. You know, bottom line for me, my biggest frustration amongst many things that. I admire. But my biggest frustration is that at the beginning of the pandemic, in January, February 2020, we as a world, especially a rich world, blew it. We blew it. It's inexplicable to me that you would let what we call a zoonotic infection. So an infection that comes from animals, a new infection of humans, that you would take a sort of uh, let's wait and see attitude now, this is not a criticism of Australia. Uh, Australia actually got it pretty right early on. It took us a little while. We were, we were a bit lucky that we were behind where other countries were. But just as a general comment, that really the global health giants of the world, the UK, the US, France, just got it wrong. And the cat got out of the bag and we went from a virus that didn't transmit very well. You know, uh, the original Wuhan strain of the virus transmitted to two or three other people if you did nothing about it. And the current virus that we have now transmits to 14 or so other people. Now, when you do your logarithmic maths, a theme I might come back to at times as we chat, Amy, when you do your logarithmic maths, you know, three times three times three is a lot smaller than 14 times 14 times 14. So it's, a, it's just like a hard to describe worse thing now because we let it go right at the beginning and then as a perpetual gripe we've never really changed as a world we've never really changed from saying we're somehow going to learn to live with this rather than to turn the thing into reverse as i say there's many good things that have happened but but that's the underlying one for me is one of perplexed frustration over letting it go and therefore the almost certainty that two and a half years later we would still be here talking about an ongoing pandemic uh, as we are now. Mm. Yeah, I remember when we did start to take it seriously in I think it was like mid-March 2020 and even a bit before that I, I was covering it on this show with some people in New York who were monitoring what was going on in China and there was a lot of nerves happening about well could it come here? Clearly we have air travel but it hadn't yet travelled. And I remember, you know, talking to some doctor friends and a lot of them saying, oh, it's just like the flu, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. And I was like, mm, are you sure? Based on the, you know, videos coming out of Wuhan, it doesn't really look like the flu. And I wonder whether you agree with this, that even that refrain, well, it's just the flu, isn't it? You know, it's just a cold, it's a coronavirus, just a kind of sniffle. We still hear that commentary even today. Yeah, we do. Look, I describe COVID as the Goldilocks pandemic. It isn't too hot and it isn't too cold if I'm not mixing up my um, stories. 
you know, there's been many worse infections. SARS-CoV-2, before that, was SARS. Now, SARS had a 10% fatality rate. So you would immediately say, oh, that must be much worse than SARS-CoV-2, which is, you know, at worst a 1%, and, and as the tools have got better, it would be a much better than 1% fatality rate. So doesn't that make SARS a worse virus than SARS-CoV-2? So you can see how it's sort of an, an in-between virus. It doesn't kill most people uh, that get infected. And so that is one of the, the on-the-face-of-it reasons why it was so easy to say, mm, I'm not sure that we need to stamp this one out. You know, that, that's where that really came mm. from. Had it been worse, it in fact would have been better, in my view, uh, if that makes sense. And then as things have gone along, and, you know, even now, two years later, we have Omicron come along and the it's mild sort of narrative becomes even stronger, which allows it to spread even more rapidly than this evolving virus already does. So they, look, the, the it's mild, it's just the flu based on the inherent in-betweenness of the virus has killed us, really. It's why we're in the, in the position we're in. I mean, there were many vested interests. Uh, we could talk about the why. Who was saying it's just like the flu? What did they have to gain? There are all sorts of vested interests we could talk till the cows come home. But if it had been a much worse virus, that narrative would not have taken hold. And, mm. uh, and I think it would have been crushed really quickly, just like SARS was, just like MERS was, or at least the attempt uh, would, would have been made. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a terrible narrative. It's, it's just the flu. I mean, it's easily 10 times worse than the flu. It's also not just a respiratory infection, you know, something we also might talk about. It infects so many organs in your body. Well, um, I was actually just going to ask you that. Why don't we address that? Because that's something I see lots of people talking about. And when I say people, I mean scientists and doctors and public health people like yourself and I'll quote one of them, they say COVID is a multi-systems disease that happens to be transmitted through the respiratory mucosa. So what does that mean? And how does COVID actually affect many different organs in the body? Because a lot of people might think, oh, well, it is just a cold. I mean, you know, you inhale it, you get a cough, you get a runny nose. It's, it seems like it's an upper respiratory tract infection. But actually the science that we now have, and we've actually seen this over definitely over at least a year, much longer, shows that multi-system organ vascular involvement. That's right. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is just because something is strictly respiratory doesn't make it benign. So, you know, uh, influenza, for example, is a horrible disease and mm. it can be a really terrible, terrible disease uh, depending on the strain that's around. So, you know, a, a respiratory pathogen can be really bad, but this is way more than that. And it happens in two ways. Really, one is direct. The, the virus actually gets into other tissues, infects other tissues, including and especially microvasculature. So that means the, the lining of your blood vessels and so on, or the, the cells of your blood. And it can get to other tissues that it can infect. The other is as an inflammatory disease, as we call it. So the, the inflammation... That means your immune system, uh, which kind of, you know, we think of as the goodies of our body, right? The immune system is, is our defense, but it can have pathological uh, consequences and overactive immune system. So inflammation can cause damage. And so those two reasons can mean you have obviously significant lung damage. That's one that people understand. 
neurological damage, I mean, actual physical neurological damage, uh, as we're seeing, the consequences have yet to be clear. The heart is an organ we're really worried about, you know, the increased frequency of cardiac complications post-COVID, you know, really serious um, concern. And even things like metabolic diseases, you know, so diabetes at an increased risk if you've had COVID. There's certainly a lot of work going on in that space. Now, they're different organ systems, but it might manifest itself as you have brain fog or excessive tiredness, chronic fatigue. I mean, literally chronic fatigue syndrome-like uh, symptoms. In fact, they might be two sides of the same coin, uh, chronic fatigue and, and so-called long COVID. So these are interrelated things, uh, sort of gut symptoms and, and so on. It's much more than a respiratory infection. But even if, especially pre-Omicron, you only considered respiratory, it was terrible, you know, on the acute side. And that's where, you know, so many people needed ventilation and, and people died horrible deaths as, as a result of that. But it's, uh, it's unfortunately much more than that. It is just the route that it transmits is, uh, is largely via the respiratory tract and not via any other way. And on a related note, well, actually, I'll bring up some of those specific risks that you were just speaking of. I mean, it would be perhaps surprising for people to realise that even after a mild disease where perhaps they didn't feel really severe symptoms, they weren't hospitalised, and by mild I mean not being hospitalised, they are at an increased risk of blood clotting that could lead to pulmonary embolism, DVT, deep vein thrombosis, stroke, heart attack. Uh, microclotting is something we've seen in acute COVID as well as long COVID. So just that alone, I think perhaps people may not realise that there are ongoing effects. Even if you don't end up with long COVID, uh, there might be ongoing risk factors for things that can kill you, essentially, that you might need to keep a look out for and, and to not dismiss your own symptoms if you had chest pain, for example. There's a big lesson in that, Amy. I absolutely agree with those comments. And, uh, and, and certainly it's of no harm to go out and get uh, a cardiovascular check anyway. And men and women, and, uh, and both of us need to, there's a lot of focus on men's cardiovascular health. Women need to uh, equally make sure they get tested frequently and often, uh, especially as they, reach, uh, as they reach middle age, COVID or non-COVID. Um, but yeah, that, that's quite right. Look, there's a lot of precision to be worked out here. But what we can say with confidence is that with a, with a high frequency, not with a low frequency, COVID is leading to other complications that are ongoing, potentially life-threatening. We, we actually don't know the answer. You know, will a very large proportion of our population's uh, life be, be shorter as a result of COVID? We, we don't know. Very much hope that's not the case. You know, will people uh, grow out of their brain fog within 12 months or, or, you know, and go back to normal? We don't know the answers, but we do know that it's, it's there. It's substantial substantial in scale. And it's enough to say, why wouldn't you adopt a precautionary principle to absolutely minimise the number of infections? You know, we have this one-dimensional focus on acute disease, hospitalisations and death, pretty important focus. Huh? Mm. But um, what a blind spot we have to ongoing chronic issues. It's, it's just completely ignored in a policy space, it seems to me, completely ignored. And so, you know, the categoric thing I can say is we know enough to know that that's nuts. 
We yeah. should have a very heavy focus on that consequence, even though I can't sit here and give you all the details about exactly what those consequences will be. Well, we have seen in other countries like the United Kingdom, the United States, where they have had high levels of transmission across all the years of the pandemic. So we were lucky to have low or no transmission in you know, a substantive proportion, but we are now seeing our transmission go up and up and up here. And it is very concerning for that reason of post-viral illness, post-viral syndromes. And we do know that they exist from people getting the flu or getting glandular fever and then not recovering and having a kind of post-viral condition that they don't recover from, that they're disabled from. And this is something that the disability sphere has been concerned about since the beginning of the pandemic was really, well, this if it happened to me and I had a virus, it could happen to someone else. And we've kind of seen it like a slow moving train crash to the point where we now see that there are 1.7 million cases of long COVID reported in the United Kingdom. And we have an idea, a rough idea, that if we have X number of cases, 10 to 30% of those cases will end up with some form of long COVID. So I'd love to ask about transmission with that in mind, because we are seeing our politicians and our chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, say that Australia will be moving from focusing on transmission and cases to only focusing on the acute severe disease end and trying to protect a small group of vulnerable people, quote unquote, but not really focusing on reducing transmission. So I'm just going to quote from his statement in Senate Estimates last week. Paul Kelly said, the general principle will be to move away from reducing COVID-19 transmission to protecting people at higher risk of developing severe disease, essentially reducing harm. The focus will be on supporting normal community functions and minimising disruptions to our health system and society. I'd love to know what you think about that change of approach and that change of strategy, given how transmissible you just said Omicron is, and the fact that our cases are hard to even get my head around uh, because we had about 380,000 last week. I mean, what are your thoughts if, if you have 380,000 cases in a week in Australia and you could have 40,000 people getting long COVID out of that group? What does that mean for the country? Well, it's, uh, it doesn't compute with me because, you know, to, to say you're going to not pay any attention to transmission but care a lot about protecting the most vulnerable and elderly in our society. Those two things are inextricably linked. I don't see how you can do one without the other. There's no magical force shield uh, you can put around the most vulnerable people who want to participate and should participate in our society normally. It doesn't make any logical sense to me at all. The big positive side for Australia, before emphasising my gripes with um, uh, with what Paul Kelly said on that front, is that there's sort of a, more than a minor miracle pulled off in Australia. You know, it, in Australia, almost every eligible person got vaccinated, double-dosed, or had the opportunity to get double-dosed before they encountered the virus for the first time. Now, that is incredible. And in the world, one of only very few examples where that's happened. So. The first thing the Australian government and the states and territories have done is give us all a fighting chance by getting us vaccinated before we got infected. So that, that is a good side, and they deserve an enormous credit for that. And then along came Omicron. You know, we're all desperate to get back to more 
you know, post Delta, we you know, get back to life, and we had this opening plan, and um, which which kind of got uh, gazumped a bit by the the escape from hotel quarantine or border control in New South Wales, and then we had the second half of 2021 floundering around, deciding whether we're going to open or stick with our our zero community transmission strategy for a bit longer. Whatever happened, we ended up opening, and along came Omicron, and we just stuck with that opening strategy. We didn't say, oh, we've got a left field thing here, which was a far more transmissible virus that was far more easily escaping of immunity. And the best way to sum that up is that two doses of your vaccine works brilliantly against Delta, but does almost nothing against Omicron. Right? So that's why we need a third dose. And anybody listening to this, if, if they only hear one message from this whole session, please get your third vaccine dose because it'll work really quite well against severe disease for many people. We might come to talk about immunocompromised and, and more vulnerable people in a moment, but please get your third dose. And in some instances, please get your fourth dose to make sure you're protected against it. But Delta was dealt with quite well by two doses, right? So we, here we had this, this, in my view, much worse virus, and that'll be a controversial statement in, in that sense. So, yeah, maybe slightly less uh, intrinsically severe. We think it's more like the Wuhan strain than the Delta strain. But because it was vastly more transmissible and could access so many more people through immune escape, it is, in my view, a worse uh, virus. We didn't change a thing in Australia. We said, she'll be right. I couldn't believe that was happening. As supportive as I was of what happened in the states and territories up until that point, I was amazed that that happened. The net result was 4,000 deaths. It was millions of Australians getting acutely sick uh, and staying home and their contacts staying home and therefore our health services being severely disrupted both directly because people were sick and indirectly because people weren't at work and our supermarket shops shelves not being stacked and uh, you know, just everything you can think of being disrupted because transmission was let go. And even then, I haven't even mentioned the, the, the chronic health impact of that. You know, we don't even talk about long COVID more generally. We have in this conversation, but just, just more, more generally. So there it happened. We all of a sudden, I don't know the number, but it's looking, you know, it looks something around half of Australia probably got COVID at that time. And of course, the result of letting viruses go is they continue to evolve. And here we are with an iterative version of Omicron, the so-called BA2, that's now causing the current wave. Another 40,000 cases today, officially, probably unofficially, closer to 100,000 cases in the day. And so on it goes. I personally cannot see any reason why you wouldn't try to restrict transmission. Mm. You not only clearly have fewer people die, you slow things down, you slow everything down. That gives your society a chance to keep functioning, gives your health system a chance to keep functioning optimally, slows down the evolution of the virus. You know, Can you imagine if right from the start, all that had happened is that the rate of transmission had only been half what it is, right? So the world did more and halved it, didn't zero it, halved it. I mean, if that had happened because... COVID is effectively a logarithmic disease, right? The outcome would have been vastly better than half. We probably wouldn't have seen Delta or Omicron even by yet. We might one day, but the tools we would have to address those by the time that was reached would be vastly better because they're improving all the time. Mm. So letting things go unchecked 
is both dangerous and illogical from my point of view. Yeah, I know that um, the World Health Organization's Mike Ryan has certainly said similar things, that it's uh, epidemiological stupidity to say that everyone needs to get it. It's inevitable, this language that we should all just give up now and wave the white flag. It's quite astounding to me thinking about the science, but we have seen those public health measures be removed very gradually, but now we're even being told that more will be removed after this Omicron peak has happened, uh, perhaps towards the end of April, so we're not that far away in fact. We did see over that January Christmas time uh, the change in close contact definitions where we went from being a close contact at work, say if we spent eight hours with someone in close proximity to them in a, an office space that's open plan, uh, we sit right next to them and they were positive, now we're not a close contact of that person. Only the people that we lived with were potentially close contacts. So to anyone who you know understood public health, I think most people thought that that wasn't a scientific decision, but an economic or political decision. Now we have national cabinet saying that they want to remove the requirement for close contacts, i.e. the people at home, to isolate for the seven days. And we know just how transmissible, as you said, Omicron is and how likely it is that household contacts will get COVID once it's in your house. So I'd love to understand from your perspective as a public health expert and someone who understands the science and who understands what reduces transmission, what your thoughts are on these proposed changes to reduce testing, PCR testing especially, they want to restrict it to symptomatic at-risk people. Um, and also to remove the requirement of isolation. Look, I think when when taken together with the statements around we're not going to worry about transmission anymore, it's a concern, uh, a serious concern. But the it's the bigger picture that I'd like to focus on mostly, and then come to the specific interventions. You know, from my perspective, protecting the most vulnerable people in the community which includes unvaccinated children, by the way. Uh, uh, we've still got anyone up to the age of five has not received, and I've got two four-year-olds, hasn't received any vaccine. Now, uh, I'm not saying it's a severe disease of children, but they're unvaccinated and it's not a nothing disease of children and there's still all those uncertainties to do with the, uh, the, you know, the non-acute effects that we need to, to take into account. So the best way to do that is to reduce transmission. The most important thing we can do on all fronts is get vaccinated, uh, get our third dose, and in some instances, our fourth dose, and then say, what have we learned about the virus and the way it transmits? So we've committed to reducing transmission, got to do that first, the opposite of what uh, the last week's statements have been. So what can we do to best as we can interrupt transmission while allowing our society to, to function as best as we can? You know, what, what are the the COVID versions of seatbelts and licenses and speed limits and car registrations to keep our roads safe. What, what are the COVID versions of those that we can, we can sign up to? And the biggest thing we've learned as a scientific community, which is a big, big thing that we've learned, is that the virus isn't transmitted in the way we thought it was. It's transmitted in a different way. Now, this is crucial. This is like, um, you know, I work on malaria a lot, Amy, and malaria literally means bad air. And so what we thought, um, my scientific ancestors thought, was transmitted through the air. They were wrong. It's transmitted by insects. 
by mosquitoes, particular species of mosquito. Once that was discovered, it changed the way malaria was controlled, of course. Just needed to stop people getting bitten, needed to drain swamps, all the rest of it. So this is the same. We, we thought that this would be predominantly a droplet disease, so large respiratory droplets um, getting on your hands or, or hitting someone at very close contact, contaminating surface, surfaces. It turns out that it's mostly, in fact, an airborne disease transmitted by contaminated air. Yeah, more likely at close range, but still very much happening within much bigger spaces that have contaminated air. Now, that's great. It's not great that it happens, but it's great that we understand that because it means there are very specific things we can do about it. We can provide clean air for starters. We know how to do that now through uh, ventilation filtration systems, UV-based systems. We know how to monitor the air, that even if that can't be done, if the air's bad in the room you're in, you can at least know about it and make sure you don't go into that space. Or when you're in that space, you wear a mask. And we also know now that because it's airborne, a high-quality mask, meaning a, an N95 or equivalent mask, is better. What I mean by that is that most surgical masks or, or less high-quality masks are very good for the sick person, preventing the sick person or the infected person from transmitting to an uninfected person, right? But they're not very good at preventing the uninfected person from breathing in particles around the side of the mask. So a high-quality mask is exceptionally good at protecting both, uh, you know, stopping people from sick, transmitting it to others, and stopping people who are not sick from getting the infection. So clearing the air, high-quality masks, we now know are crucial and applying those as best we can, one and two on the list. But equal to one and two on the list is knowing whether or not you're infected and then doing something about that, which is to your point of isolation and then isolation of those who are with you. So getting tested is absolutely crucial. It's the cornerstone of Australia's phenomenal success in the first year or, or year and a half. And we will be crazy to move away from testing, high quality testing by PCR, as well as you know the, the appropriate use of these rat tests, these rapid antigen tests. Once you get it positive though, you've got to do something about it. Now, I think, I hope there's broad acceptance that you should at least isolate it away from other people if you're infected. What's worked really well is, especially as it becomes highly transmissible, those in close contact with you obviously have a high chance of getting infected. Now that's going to happen whether there's ISO rules for them or not, because they're still living close to you. So if the theory is, we're not going to have ISO rules because we want those people to be out working. Well, they're going to get COVID anyway and go into isolation. And all you're going to do is perpetuate, perpetuate transmission. Now, in fairness to the policymakers, they're very aware of these issues. And they don't just say ISO or no ISO. They're saying, okay, how can we have our cake and eat it here? When the BA2 wave goes and we've got much lower chance of, of uh, infection in the community, uh, how can we make recommendations for those who are in contact, such as wearing a mask, such as getting tested every day, such as working from home if they possibly can? These are the sorts of suggestions the policymakers are making. So in fairness to them, they're not saying ISO or no ISO, end of the matter. 
They're saying we we are concerned. We're very concerned about people who are in contact with an infected person, but we want to try and keep society open. So, uh, look, I think it's a healthy debate, but it needs to be seen in in that package of things. The most important is we care about transmission. If you care about vulnerable people and protecting uh, your community more generally, you have to care about transmission. If you care about slowing down the evolution of the virus, you have to care about transmission. If you care about long COVID, you have to care about transmission. So it's it's illogical to say we're going to quarantine transmission away from some of these other communities that we'd like to protect. But the mechanisms to do it, we can debate. Mm. You know, so long as they are airborne mitigation uh, at their heart and have testing at their heart, then we can make a, a really big difference. But ignoring those things and, and going into a transmission doesn't matter, vaccine set and forget, I call it. So, you know, we want to vaccinate everyone and, and our government, like many, have been fantastic about vaccination for all the criticism that they get. They've always cared about it. It's always been priority number one. And that's great because it's the most powerful tool that we have. What I don't get is that as it's become clear that vaccines are not the magic bullet, they're fantastic, but they're not the magic bullet, why we haven't matured what we call the plus side of a vaccines plus strategy. And, you know, that's what I'd like to see happen in the second half of 2022 as we get more and more of these at very least Omicron-type iterative BA2 waves that we're in at the moment, and at very worst, the next major step change variant uh, that we might see. And, and I would be surprised if we don't see, given that the, the reasons why these variants emerged in the first place still exist. Yeah, absolutely. You raised some really interesting points there about the concerns that the AHPPC have around removing isolation and what could be put in its place. And you mentioned there that perhaps people could work from home, wear a mask, regular rapid antigen tests. One of the things that vulnerable people might bring up is, well, if people aren't choosing to wear a mask now and it's highly recommended by all health you know, professionals and the chief health officers and it's in every government statement, it's highly recommended, but it's not mandated. If it's not mandated and enforced, then I think a lot of people who are most at risk would worry, well, is it really going to have any impact? Is it going to really protect me? Is it really going to reduce transmission? Is this more a kind of thing of, oh, well, we've put something in place um, and hopefully some of the very conscientious people will follow it. But you know that already people think the pandemic's over. They're going out, they're having fun, they're going to bars. You know, these are the things that we wish we could have done for two years. You know, I talked to a comedian a couple of weeks ago and he's like, oh, I think it's all over. No one's wearing a mask <laughs> because they were still no, no. wearing them in no, New no. Zealand. So I wonder if we do take it from the perspective of vulnerable people, especially those who, as you say, are immunosuppressed uh, or immunocompromised, and there are many reasons for that, this is a spectrum of people who are now essentially feeling that they have to lock down to not go out. Um, and if they're not seeing these kind of protocols, like just literally opening windows in an office space or, or in a cafe or in a, a retail space, I guess there's a lot of apprehension about these rules being lifted from society in particular, because I think they're the ones who are most affected. Yeah, look, I mean, first and foremost, the compulsion to comply with public health recommendation it should be the same if it's 
isolation of contacts or if it's other public health measures that the AHPPC or others, are, you know, the authorities are suggesting in place of that. So if it's compulsory to be in ISO and that, that is not a recommendation but a mandated uh, thing and you're removing it and saying, but instead people should wear masks when they should go out, then that should be compulsory. Um, you know, so that's the easy frontline statement. If one's a recommendation, then maybe the other can be a recommendation. If one's compulsory and mandated, then the other can be compulsory and mandated. That's important in and of itself. It's not the whole answer, though. I think um, we've learned a lot in the pandemic that there's a disconnect between a tool or an intervention or a rule and whether people take up that tool or adhere to that recommendation. People who are sick not getting tested, or if they are tested, they still go about their business before they get a result. Or um, even when they get a positive result, they don't isolate. And, and now with a rat test, of course, that's really possible. So adherence, I don't use the word compliance so much, but you know what we're talking about is compliance with all of those things or, or wanting to get vaccinated or whatever, is a neglected science, right? It is deeply neglected science in the pandemic. The science of making fantastic tools has not been neglected. It's been brilliantly approached. And Australian and state and territory governments have played a big part in that. So they've done an amazing job on that front. But I can't sit here and tell you what it would take to make people in different communities, in different settings, get tested or want to take up the vaccine or want to wear a mask or want to get a better mask or uh, I can't tell you what that is. That is a social science. And, you know, this sort of community-engaged, community-led um, investigation of what it would take, including the messaging around it, you know. So I can say we need a few things in place. We need the right policy settings first. Transmission matters, vaccination matters, and some of these public health measures, not restrictions, public health measures to augment the vaccines are really important. And you want everyone from the Prime Minister to all the Premiers saying that. They don't at the moment. Mm. So we would, be, we would be a long way ahead of the game if they were all united on that front to start with. And then to say, you know, I hate the whole concept of mandating anything, but in the end we do do it as a combination of, of making it a rule and of educating as to why, for example, on our roads, I gave the analogy before about how we just do agree to live under quite strict rules when you think about it. And that's because if we don't, we know the consequences. But around that is an education campaign with authenticity, explaining why we need to do those things. We need to move into that space for COVID measures. The bitter reality is that we've given ourselves something we have to learn to live with and I don't mean euphemistically do nothing about, I mean, in the truest sense, learn to live with for years to come, right? for years to come. You know, so what can we put in place to protect as best we can our whole community with a special focus on those who are living in fear? As you point out, there are millions of those, not just a handful, even if there was a handful, that's enough for me. But we're talking about millions of Australians who live in fear, knowing that if they get infected, there's a real concern for them. So what's the reasonable balance? And so I'd like to see those policy settings right first and foremost with our leaders 
and an education campaign explaining why they're so important. And then we can debate around the margins. And we might decide, I'm not hung up on whether in low times, contacts of those infected can't go out or not. You know, there might be rules around that though. If they all wore an N95 mask, I, I could probably live with it in lower transmission times, for example, whenever they were with somebody else out of respect for that other person, given the fact that they, uh, as every chance, they either will be or already are infected in the next few days. And every close contact needs to think like that because that's um, unfortunately a reality at the moment. Any one particular measure, you know, the nuanced rules around it are less important than these bigger concepts being embraced by our leaders, being communicated strongly by our leaders. And then we can almost at a community level say, what works What works for us to make this, this work? With? They've given us our marching orders. We know uh, we need to reduce transmission. We know we need to all get vaccinated. We know we need to mitigate airborne spread. And we know we need to keep testing and isolation and, and quarantine going. How can we do that in a way that works best for our rural community in northwestern Victoria? Or how can we do that that works best for inner city Sydney or Melbourne? Because you'll get different answers, right? So get the framework right and then get the, the you know, sort of the community-driven social science right to get the compliance up rather than just sort of sledgehammer mandated rules, which I'm not ruling out. They do make a difference, you know, especially in acute emergency times. But I don't think they're, they're where the main discussion needs to be. Mm. I think you're right with the public health messaging, and that's something that has really dropped off. And it's also become very contradictory. And I think that's why so many people are confused, because on the one, one hand, they're being told, and they were being told, well, we just need vaccines. You just need to get vaccinated. That's your ticket out of here. That's what you have to do. That's all I'm asking of you. Then you can go off and have fun. That was pretty much the message. And I mean, it may have been more relevant to Delta, but it's not really relevant now in the it situation that we're in. It still wasn't relevant to Delta. Yeah, it was no. more relevant, as you imply, but it certainly wasn't the, uh, the case. It wasn't the then. answer. Exactly. No. So we were kind of sold at the time. This is what's going to happen. This is your reward. Uh, now things have changed and I'm gathering politicians don't want to take away the reward that they gave everyone. And that's the awkward conversation that we need to be having as a general public. And you've already said here we need a vaccines plus strategy. As you've pointed out, it's actually really simple. I mean, you literally could just open a window on one side and a window on the other side, have a CO2 monitor in your place, which I've got one at home. I do that every day to ventilate my house. You know, it's really easy and you can see it go down straight away, you know, to like 450 yeah. from 800 or something yeah, like exactly, that in your yeah. house. You know, wearing an N95, easy. I actually find them more comfortable than the other masks. You know, these Same. are things, yeah, that, I mean, we both understand. And I'm sure that those who would be black-minded like us would do as well if they had the public messaging, had the tools and understanding, weren't receiving a different message through the media and from politicians. So I think that's what's been of value today, I hope, is that people take that away from this conversation. But Brendan, I just wanted to finish the conversation on something I saw you tweeting over January, and that was because we did see a really high tick up in deaths, and we're still seeing an ongoing number of deaths. We saw 180 Australians die last week of COVID. COVID. We're seeing that continue. And if transmission continues the way it is, the deaths will continue the way they are. So you mentioned something called baseline deaths and that we're essentially kind of accepting 
a baseline amount of deaths. And I wonder if you could, I guess, explain to us what we are essentially entering into, what kind of bargain we're entering into if we do accept ongoing transmission like this in terms of loss of life. Yeah, my death, um, baseline death discussion is based around two things. One is what's actually happening and the other is what the lessons of sort of comparable developed country economies have been tolerating for a while. So the UK, for example, over the last nine months has had as many deaths, they've had 40,000 deaths, right, which is as many as they had in the first wave. They've had three big waves, two big waves, and then this flat peak where deaths have not dipped to very low numbers at all. They've not gone up to very high numbers either, but they've been between 100 and 300 a day. They're at 300 a day in the UK, which is the equivalent of about 40 to 100 a day in Australia, if you correct for population. They're tolerating that. They are tolerating that. Now, that is a very big number for Australia. So if, if, we, if we were to have you know, 100 deaths a day is, uh, is of course, 36,000 people uh, would die in a year. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have deaths like that, but those US and the US is even worse than the UK. So that's what, you know, sort of countries like ours are tolerant. That seems to be a price they're willing to pay. Now, we've not had that discussion in Australia. Is that is that what we would do? We're at the moment on about 4,000 deaths for 2022. Uh, so, of course, we could easily reach something like 10,000 deaths a year. 30 deaths a day is about 10,000 deaths, and we're on an average of 30 deaths a day now. We have in Australia normally 450 deaths every day, you know, that we as public health and, and health professionals try to get down to a smaller number. COVID is adding 5 to 10% on average to that without us batting an eyelid. And, of course, if the, ne if the next major variant comes along, let's hope it doesn't, but it could be, you know, a significant increase. I am astonished we're tolerating numbers like 4,000 deaths already this year and an ongoing likelihood of at least that number again. It's mind-blowing to me. We talk about an influenza year, a bad influenza year in Australia. That's 1,000 deaths. We've had that twice in the last decade. So, you know, just the Omicron wave itself, I smashed that many times over. So this is back to our COVID's not the flu. COVID is definitely not, um, definitely not the flu. So look, that. The baseline death thing is is really disturbing to me, and it, you know, and the discussion around it that, well, those who are dying are either old or have pre-existing health conditions. I mean, you know, heaven help me, if that's where we're going as a society to say that that's somehow an okay discussion. But you will hear that from all of our leaders qualifying as they say how sorry they are. There's a certain number of deaths each day. They've stopped saying they've stopped even talking about it even in the slightest. It's extraordinary to me our tolerance of deaths. But I don't know what baseline we'll have. We're going up and down here. Uh, we haven't gone below where we are now at about seven-day average of 26, 27. We're obviously heading up again because of the BA2 wave. Uh, how high we'll go, I don't know, but you know, we might go to 50 to 100 deaths a day for a while, I imagine. Vaccines, of course, wane. Immunity wanes as well to the previous infection and to vaccines. And the virus evolves to change and, of course, we become more and more open in society. So there's a lot more transmission back to our earlier discussion. 
all of those things mean we have, uh, you know, sort of a worrying time ahead, a really big community decision to make to say, do we care? I mean, I, I can't believe I need to even say that, but at the moment it doesn't seem like we really care that that's happening, you know, and, and you know, we'll have to see what happens overseas as well. We, we haven't uh, talked about what is happening overseas and, of course, there's an awful lot of virus in unvaccinated people still around the world. There's 2.7 billion people in the world who, it's a third of the world, have not received a single dose. And obviously that's horribly unethical and, and they're going to suffer directly as a result of that. But also they're factories for new variants. So whatever we do here in Australia isn't going to affect that. We need to roll up our sleeves and support efforts around the world to get those people vaccinated but you know yes other places have worse death rates than ours uh, but that's no reason why why we should be comfortable with um with the death rate we've got we need to have a discussion and maybe society says yep we're willing i'm not but maybe the society says we're willing to to tolerate that but I, i don't see us having really had that discussion at all no no we definitely haven't had that discussion uh we have been told that we should be downplaying it because of people's supposedly pre-existing conditions that will lead to their untimely death. I still do check the age brackets and the people who are dying, and I do see 30-year-olds who are double vaccinated as of last week dying of COVID who, as New South Wales Health said, didn't have an underlying health condition. That doesn't make that person better or worse than the person who died from a pre-existing condition and COVID, but it does point out that everyone should be concerned about this virus, whether they have a pre-existing condition or not, no matter what their age is. Obviously, if you're older, you're in a greater risk area, but maybe our complacency is because we think it's not us, it's not about us, it's about other people and it's outside of our sphere, so you know, why should we concern ourselves with it? Yeah, I think there are also reasons that I do understand. I think we are traumatised. I think we as a world are traumatised. I think we as a community are traumatised. I get that. You know, mm. we are. And thinking, you know, I just there's not much more I can take of this. I mean, those sort of things I get. I absolutely get. But it's not an excuse, especially as leaders, to not speak honestly with people about the circumstance we're in and say, yeah, I, I hear that. But here's what we're facing. And how can we come at a reasonable middle ground that recognizes we we really must do all we can within reason to protect everyone in our community those we can see and those we can't see and you know that means i think stepping up and getting vaccinated even if you think you're a young person who doesn't need their third dose or whatever stepping up and getting vaccinated do your bit for the community uh, it also means being serious about those other public health measures as individuals and most especially as policymakers both sides. I mean, individuals should say, I am not going to that restaurant that can't guarantee it has made some efforts to have clean air for me. I know I don't go uh, yeah. in that circumstance, right? That's our duty to do it. You've, you, you know, policy will change pretty quickly once that happens. And, you know, there are some good signs in, in Victoria, which has suffered the most. There are some good signs about mitigating in schools, mitigating in other uh, circumstances, the air, 61,000 filtration units were bought over the summer and implemented in schools. This is a good step forward. And, you know, my challenge to all policymakers is get on board the airborne mitigation revolution for the sake of COVID, for the sake of flu, for the sake of respiratory illnesses more generally, for the sake of bushfire, smoke and pollutants, 
you know, treat the air like you treat the water so brilliantly. You know, we demand clean water. Let's demand clean air in our publicly shared spaces. You know, that is happening and we can be laggards or we can be leaders. And, uh, and I, you know, very much hope that nationally we're going to be leaders in that front. I think we're going to step closer to it with more conversations like this, Brendan. So thank you so much for taking the time to educate us because I know people will feel more empowered hearing this information and knowing what we can do and realising that we all can actually do things to stop the spread and to protect ourselves, but also, I think more importantly, to think about everyone else as well. So thank you so much for giving us your time and your expertise and also your honesty and your passion. And I really hope that things do turn around for all of our sakes. No, thanks so much. It's my absolute pleasure. And you know, I'd just like to leave you and all the listeners with things, uh, especially the science doesn't stand still. You know, The tools that we have in a year's time uh, will be much better than the tools we have now. You know, we haven't talked about the drugs. We haven't talked about the better vaccines that are on the way, vaccines that block transmission, not just prevent severe disease. This is all happening, right? We just don't have to sit back and accept the current circumstance. Let's, let's hold it off as best we can because the cavalry is coming. Mm. Um, so it, there, there, is, there are better days ahead. Just Don't have to just hold the line. that people need to, to die or get long COVID or get sick in the meantime. Mm. Um, we, we need to hold the line exactly right. Yep. Well, let's hold the line. I love that. I think that should be part of a messaging campaign. Love hold it. the line. The cavalry is on the way. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brendan. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Now, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program two people I admire greatly and I know many listening do too. Bill Gamage, who is a historian and the author of many books, including The Biggest Estate on Earth, which is a classic, historical classic for many, and also Bruce Pascoe, who's written a number of books as well. He is a, a writer and a farmer and a Yuan man and a Bunurong man from Tasmania, born in Richmond. And Bruce has written a very well-known book to many people listening, Dark Emu. Bill and Bruce have both combined forces to co-author a new book called Country, Future Fire, Future Farming, and it's part of a First Knowledges series, which has been produced by Thames and Hudson. So I welcome both Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe today. Hi there, Bill. Uh, good day, Amy. Good to be... Oh. I was about to say good to be with you, but people think I'm a politician. So <laughs> good day, good day. Good day works well. Uh, hi there, Bruce. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Um, I'm well. That's great. Now, Bruce uh, is a very busy person, as many people know, so he has to head off in a 20 minutes' time. So we're going to start with Bruce, which Bill has agreed to as well. So anyone wondering, that's why I've um, divided the labour in this uh, chat first. So. Bruce, it's so wonderful to hear you writing with such passion and enthusiasm for farming and particularly sharing insights with us, personal insights with us about your farm in East Gippsland. I really wonder if you could take us there, in our minds at least, to your farm and tell us about it, what it looks like, and then we can use that, I hope, as a jumping point into the points you're making in this book about farming. Well, uh, the property is called Yambra, 
which is black duck and the central spiritual being of you and people. But I bought the property because we needed to be able to grow these foods that I talk about in Dark Emu so that Aboriginal people have a foothold in an industry which is going to be massive. But the property, when I bought it, was the cheapest in Gippsland because we had no money. Um, but it's actually been very fortuitous because the property has high ground and river flat. It's bounded by the, the Great Wallagra River and it also has saline swamps. So the amount of food that we can grow here is pretty incredible. We can grow salt-tolerant plants, freshwater plants, but also uh, plants that like dry country. So even though it's only 148, it combined a um, huge range of uh, geographic features. And we're growing about five grasses and uh, uh, the same number of tubers and lilies. And look, we, we're really excited about the prospects of this, this industry. Um, there's no doubt that these foods are going to be really popular. They're also going to be very good for the environment. They'll sequester carbon. People won't have to plough their lands. They won't have to spread artificial fertiliser. They won't have to use any more water than the sky can provide. So they're going to be a boon for Australia. They're going to be a boon for our economy. But the big trick for Australia, as always over the last two, 30 years, is making sure that Aboriginal people benefit from this knowledge. That's been hard for Australia. And here's an opportunity, I think, for Australians to come together to be more considerate of their land and more considerate of the people who have always been here. Yeah, absolutely. And the case you put forward is so compelling in terms of just how economically viable these old ways of doing things are. Mm. Um, you talk about the fact that the way we think about forests is also very different and trees and tree placement and the spaces between trees, the understory and the undergrowth and the fact that you actually want to start farming or have started farming in these forest areas. And that might sound counterintuitive to someone who's not familiar with it. So I wonder, could you share with us what these forests used to look like and why you are looking to go back to that stage and, and how you're trying to reinstitute that knowledge that First Nations peoples have? The old Aboriginal forest was a lot safer. People lived a much safer life in pre-colonial times because um, as rule of thumb, there were about 10 or 12 massive trees to the acre. Just before the big fires, 2019-2020, I walked through some forestry coups on the, the boundary of New South Wales and Victoria, and on average I was counting 330 small trees. All of those trees had their crowns touching, so any ignition in that forest was going to be explosive. And that's exactly what happened. Parts of the forest that I re returned to 
look at post-fire were gone. They weren't even dead sticks, they were gone. That's because the fire was so hot. I've never seen a fire like it. We knew it was coming and we knew what to expect, but it, you still, it still shocks you to see the devastation. And it's not necessary. It's because these commercial forests that we, where we're looking to harvest every tree in the forest so that all the trees are the same age, they're all small, they all, their crowns touch each other. It's just an explosive force waiting to happen. The old Aboriginal forests had massive trees and space underneath them and Aboriginal people routinely burnt that space. So it made it very safe, but it also made it incredibly productive. We've been burning our tubers and lilies and our grasses, and if we don't, they don't prosper. These plants are Australian. Uh, they're used to interaction with humans, and that interaction often used fire. Uh, the continual harvest was part of their, their development, but also the use of fire. So we see that natural response every time. We can harvest lilies, and we don't take the whole plant out of the ground. We take some of the tubers. We then press the plant back in the ground. When you come back the next morning, it is hard to recognise the plant that you harvested because they recover so quickly. These plants are used to it. They're Australian plants. And I remember reading The Biggest Estate on Earth and just nodding my head when I read about that myth that the Australian colonial artists were pining for England and trying to recreate England. They weren't trying to recreate England. They were trying to paint what was in front of their eyes, a widely spaced park-like forest. That's what Bill described, and that is what we want to return to, a safer, more beautiful place. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that having those plants in the ground, they do seem to also have a really unique effect in terms of aerating the soil. And you say that it, it really does change the soil quality as well. Yeah, the interaction between these plants and the mycorrhizal fungi and the, the, the trees themselves is very complicated. And I'm reading a, a book about fungi at the moment its name has just eluded me, but it's a, a fantastic book. I wish a lot more farmers would read it, as well as Charlie Massey's book, The Cry of the Reed Warbler. Um, this is a, a really complex situation. We don't, we don't want to reduce farming to the plough and the superphosphate bag. We need it to be complex. Farmers need to be earth scientists. Uh, they don't necessarily need to go to university, but they have to love their ground and respect their ground. And many, many farmers do. Uh, I wish foresters were the same. Uh, we have to care for Mother Earth. We have to love her. We have to think every day, what can we do to look after her? And if we do, if we do those things, if we stop and think, we won't be doing what they're doing in East Gippsland, which is clear felling forests so intensely that the entire topsoil runs off with every rain, and we've had plenty of that. It all ends up in the river, and eventually it ends up out at sea. These rivers here, the Maramingo, 
the Jinnor, the Wallagra, you used to be able to navigate them for dozens of miles upstream. You can't do that anymore because they're silted up. This is an abuse of our geography. And if we call ourselves Australians and we love Australia, it's no use just loving the hills, hoist and the stump jump plough. We've got to love the land. Absolutely. And I was really taken by what you wrote when you were talking about larger and older trees and how we need to love them and accept them and want to keep them on country. And you talk about the killer trees that were painted with a K on almost every big tree on the roadside around the 2019-2020 summer bushfires when they had abated, the contractors and forest managers were going around marking these trees, basically saying that they needed to be all removed and destroyed because they were a danger to humans. But in fact, you were arguing that although we need fewer trees, we need larger trees per acre. And I wondered if you could expand on that element and our really kind of odd relationship with older trees, because as we know, old growth trees do provide such vital habitat to animals, for example, as well. Yes, the old tree has a different character to the young trees. It nurtures more life because of those, uh, those holes, the bigger limbs, the cavities in the branch junctions, all of those things are nurseries of life. And we need those old trees. And I think about it a lot because I've just finished building another couple of rooms under my house and I used timber. Some of the timber was new. Most of it was denailed timber from the original building. But I still did use some treated pine. So I can't be pie in the sky about the forest. We have to find a way of getting our trees. And as it was pointed out to me the other day, what we're doing on the farm is totally illegal because we are thinning a forest. We're not, we're not supposed to be touching that forest. But we want to have this conversation with the foresters, with national parks, with DELP, with all the authorities. We want to have this conversation about how we might treat the forests in the future. And because we're seeing the trees, that is currently illegal. But what I think it leads to is that while we're thinning those forests, we're going to have 30, 40 years of timber supply. Now, that gives us time to think about how we get the timber we need to use. And I'm arguing, just like with plastics, if we price plastic at its real cost, at its environmental cost as well as its physical cost. And if we price timber at its real cost, that is its environmental cost as well, it will become economical to reuse old timber. I'm sickened by the number of building sites that go past where they're, being the, they're burning the odd length of treated pine that they've sawn off and uh, they're burning but worse still, they're burning all the old growth timber that's come out of these seedlings of these old houses they're renovating. It's tragic. And we only need to adjust the economy by a couple of percentage points to increase the price of new timber. And suddenly, the old timber is valuable and recyclable. No one likes pulling nails out of timber. No one likes picking up a, a piece of timber that they have to look at twice to make sure that where they cut their 
notches for the joins um, hasn't already had a notch cut in it. You know, it's a bit of a fiddle, but we have to make it worthwhile because that timber must not be wasted. And so with the process that we're using, as I said, it's currently illegal. We think Australia will have 30, 40 years' supply of new milled timber available to them as these thinned trees are utilised, not for wood pulp, not to make hamburger wrappers, but to make timber, really good timber, because these thin trees in our forests, they're dead straight. And so for that 30 or 40 years, we're going to have this terrific resource to use. Please don't let us send it to Japan for wood chips. Please let us use it as construction material and use it again and use it again and use it again. Well, as we know, we are in a construction materials shortage, so being sustainable makes total sense and you um, you make some really excellent points, Bruce. You do say uh, when you're reflecting on your methods in one of the chapters, you say we will need to cool burn beneath the trees to inhibit scrub when we try to replicate the old system of growing crops under the canopy of a more open forest. And I felt that was a really great way of explaining, you know, what you're doing for people who, you know, may not quite understand how it all kind of interacts. But when you're talking about crops and and the different types of native Australian plants that you in particular are growing at the moment, there's some really wonderful and fascinating ones to read of. And I know I'd already heard of some of them through Sailor's Grave with the Dark Emu Dark Lager. I spoke with Chris Moore, who was saying that you were supplying him with some Indigenous grass seeds. So I wonder, could you talk about some of the grasses and uh, some of the plants that you're growing at the moment that you're particularly excited by? Yeah, look, that burning is very important, just to start with that first. Yeah. I'm burning beneath the trees. Take a drive through East Gippsland at the moment, through the burnt areas, and have a look at the regrowth of tobacco bush, small wattles. It is impenetrable. You can't walk through it. So what happens when that dries off, which it will as soon as we have dry, warm weather, it'll become a time bond. So Mm. we have to burn Aboriginal people would have been back into that forest within weeks uh, to suppress some of that undergrowth because it's so dangerous. Uh, And the people working on the farm, we haven't had a dry break yet, but as soon as we get one, we'll be burning because we need to supply sailors' grave uh, with grain, but we also need to supply the bakers. We've got bakers on this as long as your arm waiting for us to supply them with seed and flour. And some of those grasses, like the kangaroo grass, Mamaja Nalak, the dancing grass, we've got a, a red anther wallaby grass now, which we call Badala Nalak. They're yeah, it's terrific grasses, spear grass, a completely underrated, underrated pasture grass. We're getting terrific results with that. So those grasses are perennial. Their root masses are massive. Entangled Life was the name of that book I was thinking about before. Oh, yes. Those root masses of, say, kangaroo grass, spear grass, red anther and microlina, they're huge in comparison to what is above the soil. And so they're holding soil together. They're helping to build soil. They're interacting with the mycorrhizal fungi. They're supporting an enormous amount of wildlife and... It's so good for the environment, but so are the lilies. The 
the tubers themselves are having this interaction uh, with other trees, with other plants, with other fungi. And they're so important for the Australian soils. And there are going to be fortunes made out of returning to some of these plants. You know, they're going to be incredibly groovy, you know, for a long time. And, you know, coffee shops in Peran and Port Melbourne will do very well out of saying that they're using those foods. But as I said before, the trick is for Australia to make sure that Aboriginal people benefit from this knowledge. This knowledge that has been built over 120,000 years, and if you, you know, like some in the archaeological industry, don't like the, the number 120,000 years, I'll speak to Jimmy Butler, one of Australia's preeminent archaeologists. Come out to Mythica Country and have a look at the work that's been done there. Go down to Point Ritchie in Warrnambool. The evidence is all around us. You know, it may not have made a, a textbook yet, uh, but it's there. And Aboriginal people over all that period of time have been making sure that this cycle has been protected and perpetuated over massive periods of time. And if we chuck away that amount of knowledge, we're really defying our own intelligence. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that is the crux of it, that we need to make sure that Aboriginal people do financially benefit in every kind of way and socially as well. I know you have to head off, Bruce, but I just wanted to mention something I really loved reading about, and that's that you researched the world's first breads here in Melbourne at the Melbourne Museum. And I know, you know, the particular moment you write brought you to tears. And I know historians have had those kind of archival moments. It did bring back to me the idea that these grasses, I mean, they are essentially gluten-free as well, I believe. So the idea that it could open up a whole other market for people who are gluten intolerant and celiacs and health conscious mm. people and culturally interested people and people who just love the flavour as well. So you know, it's really exciting to hear your discoveries about the Aboriginal peoples who made our first breads. Yeah, um, a lot of those foods um, have incredibly complex reactions with our gut uh, mm. that we're discovering now through culinary science. But there's a, a few proteins in kangaroo grass flour, for instance, which are incredibly useful for diabetics. But the background news there is that if people were eating these things, perhaps they wouldn't become diabetic. Mm. And, you know, this information about our health and the extraordinary health of Aboriginal people at contact, you know, the fact that our people had no dental disease, for instance, was a factor of diet. The fact that people were tall and slim was a factor of diet as well as genetics. So there's so much positivity in this discussion and it, it's only going to be the curmudgeons who can see a negative most other Australians are going to embrace it you know the, the curmudgeons are going to say oh you know he's exaggerated the intelligence of Aboriginal people he's exaggerated uh, the benefits of these foods well this information is going to come out in a swarm over the next decade and I'd love Australia to be ready for it, ready to accept it and ready to make sure that Aboriginal people benefit from it. Because by reaching out to take 
the new flowers, the new tubers, you're also reaching out to Aboriginal people, I hope, and I hope Aboriginal people would extend their arm to make sure that this provides a better conversation between black and white. Yeah, yeah. It's a really exciting time, I can tell. And there's so much more in this book, certainly in your chapters, Bruce, that goes into this. So I hope people can make sure that they check out the book as a whole, but also visit these chapters that we've just been discussing. Thank you so much for your time. I'll let you go. And I really appreciate your time today, Bruce, and I'll uh, head across to Bill. Uh, Good on you. Thanks very much, Amy. And uh, Bill, I'm sorry to shoot through like a Bondi tram, but um, (laughs) uh, there's some important community work to be done today. So I'll get on with that. Not a problem. Glad you got stuff to do, mate. Hang in there. Thank you. Yeah. See you, Bruce. We were chatting with Bruce Pascoe, writer and farmer, who was chatting with us about parts of the book that he has co-written with Bill Gamage, who is also on the line with me now. The book is called Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And uh, Bill is a historian, Bill Gamage. He is based at the Humanities Research Centre at the Australian National University. And you may be familiar with some of his books, which include The Broken Years, Australian Soldiers in the Great War, as well as The Big Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia, and that book is very relevant to this one. As, Bill, you point out, actually, in the introduction where you say that you're drawing a lot on the research that you did in that book, and therefore people can go back to The Biggest Estate on Earth if they want to delve into more of the points that you bring up in this book, because you've got it all there, uh, all the references, all the beautiful illustrations as well. So, yes, I should just wanted to point that out to anyone that they should absolutely check that book out as well. But, Bill, we were just talking off air and I was saying that I really, when I was reading this book, I found it so hard to narrow down what was most important because I found myself underlining pretty much everything. And it just really got me excited and opened my eyes to the possibilities of what Australia could be like again and return to because of all the work that you and Bruce have done. So I wanted to, I guess, talk about that element and the kind of wonder that this work brings to people who aren't familiar with what Australia was like, as in the title of your other book, The Biggest Estate on Earth. Yeah, well, you're not alone in being surprised, uh, Amy. A lot of readers have got in touch with me and, and said, you know, this is amazing, it's changed my life, etc., etc." And it certainly has for me too. I mean, my research was a slow process of discovery. It, it, it started uh, by contrasting what uh, certain pieces of land were like when I could see them with descriptions from early uh, settlers uh, or what we call explorers. Most commonly, I'd find that a place was covered in trees, whereas then it was uh, grass, quite often very rich grass, but grass. And I'd say, well, if it's trees now, why wasn't it trees then? You know, trees grow and and so the soil couldn't explain it, salt couldn't explain it. I thought of fire fairly early on, but most uh, trees, especially eucalypts, which is a a focus of mine, eucalypts and acacias, will recover in different ways after fire. So uh, the forest remains, you know, unless it's something like Black Summer, which, you know, removed the sticks as well. So it couldn't have been that. And I realised that it was 
Aboriginal fire. Now, I knew Aborigines burnt the country. Uh, settlers constantly complaining about Aboriginal people burning the country. But it made me see that they were doing it much more carefully and deliberately and selectively than uh, the ordinary text would suggest to you. And so that made me search. And that got me on a process of discovery, not only about fire, but about the interaction with plants, as Bruce was talking to you, about water and also about Aboriginal social organisation to extent to explain why their management of the land was so strictly enforced by their philosophies. Yeah. And as we know, in Dark Emu, Bruce's other book, he was talking about how Aboriginal people were engaging in farming practices and agriculture. Uh, and in your book, I know that it supports that as well. And you say that, you know, they were very strategic in particular in the way that they planned and worked hard to make plants and animals abundant, convenient and predictable. You say they depended not on chance but on policy. And you also say in 1788 the people of this land were fire farmers. So I wonder, could you use those two quotes as a springing point to explain what you mean there about their strategy, particularly around fire, but how they then bring in animals and plants? Okay, I'll go back a bit if I may. Yeah. Um, I think the Aboriginal philosophy and therefore the religion has an ecological base. The basic premise is if something exists, it's entitled to live. And so it's the duty of all species, including humans, to make sure that that, that right to existence is provided for. That means there has to be a place for every species every single species. I mean, I have a friend in Central Australia or I had a friend in Central Australia whose dreaming was maggots because maggots are entitled to live. So what people are doing when they're managing the country is making sure there's a place, basically making sure there's a place for every kind of creature. Now, of course, some creatures can coexist, but others need uh, different kinds of habitat. Spin effects is very different from rainforest to take an obvious example. So what people are doing with fire and also no fire, burning and not burning, is distributing vegetation so that each kind of vegetation has a, a place and also that that vegetation will provide a habitat and food and shelter for every species kangaroos on grass, koalas on gum trees, etc., etc., And that, that is a very complex interaction which produced the uh, mosaic of different kinds of vegetation that uh, European arrivals described in 1788. And my book is trying to delineate those different kinds of habitats, myriad kinds of habitats, but also the philosophy that linked them together. And that's why I call it the greatest estate. So you've got a whole lot of small discoveries, which is your underlying page by page, organised and directed by a, a universal philosophy about the entitlement of all creatures to exist. Yes, and you do go into you know a lot of the detail around the different plants, um, you know, eucalypts, kangaroo grass. But I was really struck by this phrase that you used, the plant fire alliance. And that 
really resonated. It just seemed to kind of encapsulate everything you were saying about plants and the fact that a fire needs plants for fuel, plants need fire or no fire to thrive, but their alliance needs a spark. And I just wonder, could you share with us more about that plant-fire alliance, the idea, and what you were seeking to explain to us in terms of that really intricate mosaic? Yes, that's well picked up, Amy. It's an essential relationship in Australia and also in other uh, southern hemisphere places too, I think. Uh, That is that the plants, many plants need fire to regenerate. Bruce was talking very well about the uh, different uh, tubers and lilies that he has on his place and how much they flourish after fire, which means you can then harvest them more often and more selectively. Um, They actually respond. If, If you don't burn kangaroo grass, it becomes moribund, it becomes senile, if you like, which is one reason, by the way, why in uh, city parks and so on, I think they face a problem with uh, with native grasses. They have to burn them. But that burning is something the plants expect and they regenerate. What you do is, with most grasses, you put a, a cool burn through, that is a fire you could step over, basically, or perhaps a a bit bigger than that in the north where the grass grows so freely. And what you see there is the cool fire moving through the grass, creating a mosaic of burnt and unburnt patches. It's almost as though the fire is caressing the grass into life, saying, you know, this part of your cycle, it's time for another one, we're going to regenerate. And the two of them cooperate together to produce uh, fertile grasses, rich food supply and so on. So that plant fire alliance is a way of thinking about fire in particular for uh, whitefellas to see what's basic to the Australian uh, vegetation. Yeah. And you do have, as you know, some really great notes. There's a section called 1788 Fire Notes with some great points that people can go through if they want to understand the conditions, the approaches that were taken in 1788 and what one might do today to try and replicate that. But obviously it does require deep knowledge of country and of the kind of particular ecology that you're actually living in and working on. It's interesting to me that you are providing this knowledge and it's great that you are as well because it's something that no doubt will keep coming up in future when we see more and more increasing bushfires that are catastrophic, unfortunately, because of climate change and what we've done to the planet. But this is one way. It's quite clear and, you know, you pointed out in the book, this is one way that we can actually minimise the harm that's done overall from these catastrophic bushfires that are likely to happen again after we have this, you know, La Nina, we might end up having a dry season. So I wonder, could you reflect on the element of pragmatism that is part of this book in terms of providing solutions to the climate crisis and solutions to the overgrowth of forests that we romanticise, you know, all this bush and scrubland, but actually, as you point out and as Bruce has pointed out, it, it wasn't the case that that wasn't what it was like in the past. Why it's so uh, more pragmatic is because when I wrote The Biggest Estate, which is published in 2011, 
I was talking about coming fires. I, I predicted a fire like Black Summer. I mightn't have got the details, but I said there are big fires coming and we need to do things such as reduce fuel to prevent that happening. Almost a decade later, what happened? Those fires came. We had done nothing to prevent them. People were killed. Rows of houses were destroyed. Acres and acres of property, native species endangered. It was a catastrophe. And I, if anything, I felt ashamed. I should have been much more aggressive in the biggest estate. Well, I wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. In country, you, I contrast what people did in 1788 with what we do now and showed the big gap and I showed how our practices created uh, black summer and will create future black summers. And so the table you're talking about is ways to deal with our neglect, as it were, to make sure that we spend more effort on preventing and less on fighting because we don't succeed in the fighting. It's quite clear that uh, fighting fires is a losing proposition. We have to prevent them. And so that table talks about it. Let me add that after Black Summer, we had a great opportunity, which we're going to miss. If you look at uh, Black Summer, uh, where it was burnt, it was a catastrophe without question. But it was also, if you like, a blank sheet where we could start again. As the vegetation recovered, we could selectively burn it. We could burn parts of it, patches of it, much like the clearings in the, the forest of 1788. We could let other parts uh, grow a bit more or less often put a fire through them to get rid of the tobacco bush and the other things that Bruce was talking about. And gradually keeping doing that, you would create a mixed forest. There'd be plains and mosaics of grass in the middle of forests, some with scrub, some without scrub, some with big open trees, some with denser trees, according to the various habitats that various plants and animals and insects and birds need. That would be the easiest way to start it. We've missed that chance, I think. You know, we mm. just sit back and weep at the tragedy. We have to be more understanding of what Aboriginal people would do and more aggressive in uh, following their practice in looking after the country. And one component as well that I just wanted to add in, uh, because I, I also found it very interesting, and it reminds me of these times where we have big locust plagues and, you know, some types of an ecology or an ecosystem might overgrow or become overabundant. And you and Bruce point out in this book, Country, that Aboriginal people would suppress and balance the ecosystem and to balance country. And so animals were culled if their numbers swelled off their totem places, you say, and they thinned or cleared trees for grass. Um, they removed scrub. But you also point out really interestingly that fire suppressed insects and quote some interesting primary sources around Europeans observing this practice that, you know, the insect populations would go down. And, and it seems like there's this really fascinating and intricate balance, not only of that keeping everything in a certain number so it's in harmony, but also, as you point out, their systemic management, the distribution as well of where species go. So I wondered, could you just talk about 
a little bit about that around not only the volume of a species, you know, how many there are, but also where they are? Yeah, well, I think it's generally accepted now that uh, a fire will reduce uh, grasshoppers by destroying the, the, their eggs and, and so on, uh, and the young uh, grasshoppers. The problem is to burn at the right time, which doesn't always suit parcelists. And uh, for other insects, uh, there's a remarkable man, uh, Alfred Howard, over a century ago, 1890s now, uh, who wrote an article called The Eucalypts of Gippsland. And he correlated the dieback in some uh, species with the increase of insect uh, predators on those species of, of eucalypts, of trees, forests, whole forests that were killed when the insects got out of control and clearly that wasn't happening uh, under Aboriginal management otherwise the trees wouldn't have been there at all and so he gives a very good example of how fire can manage uh, eucalypts and that's one of the consequences of imbalance but as you say the important thing for Aboriginal people was to ensure that there there was that balance because a balance meant as I said when I first began talking, every species, every creature had a place and that place they were secure in. And if one species was intruding onto another, for example, if kangaroos were eating too much grass and not in their conservation reserves but somewhere else, then that meant there were too many kangaroos and they'd be culled or hunted more often or whatever the case may be. And so you can go on... With um, if scrub is over uh, growing over grass or rainforest is encroaching onto grass, then it'd be burnt back and and so on and so on. Balance was important. I just wanted to finish on this question to you. Capitalism it definitely has negative components, and a lot of it is the fact that we've been so unsustainable in the way that we've lived on this planet and colonisation and its effects on country and in Australia has obviously had detrimental effects as this book outlines. But we also have choices within a capitalist system. And that's another thing that you both point out in the conclusion is we all have agency and choices. So I wondered when we're reflecting on the message of this book, what were you hoping that the reader would take away, especially given what you've said around the urgencies for these different issues, the most obvious one being climate change? Well, uh, several messages, uh, I think. Uh, one of the uh, first is that, we, as Bruce said, we should recognise that this is intellectual property by Aboriginal people and we should pay for it, pay for it uh, either directly or more in my preference, uh, by increased training opportunity, giving Aboriginal people jobs, including senior executive positions in managing land uh, so that they have a respected status and their knowledge can be applied. But another thing is that we should be able to create the flexibility in our management so that where we can begin now which is in parks and reserves and Aboriginal land, we can start to try and head back towards 1788 and uh, using fire to do that. Plus, 
from another direction, if you like, do what Bruce is doing and as a model and show how the actual farming products that we make can be better related to Australian soil. So we'd have fire teaching some things, uh, plants and, and their uses teaching other things to uh, create a more uh, viable, uh, I'd say more sustainable, more profitable land use, which is what uh, you mentioned capitalism, but capitalism and socialism both aim for that kind of thing. I, uh, I really do implore people to read the book, and I rarely say that, but they really should. It's so, so excellent in all the ways we've outlined today and many other areas as well. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you, Bill, and Bruce as well earlier, and uh, I'm so grateful to you both for combining your knowledge and your deep passion for this as well as your deep respect for Aboriginal country, culture and knowledge. Uh, it really does shine through in this book. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit of it with us today. Thanks, Amy. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And mine. Good. I've just been speaking with Bill Gamage there. Thank you so much, Bill. And also with Bruce Pascoe, who have both co-authored this book, Country, Future Fire, Future Farming. And uh, as I said, Bruce is a writer and a farmer. He's a Ewan and Bonarong man. And uh, Bill is based up in Canberra at ANU and is a historian. Uh, both are the author of many brilliant books that I hope you do check out, including uh, the Biggest Estate on Earth as well by Bill and Dark Emu by Bruce. And you can also taste uh, that lovely Dark Emu Dark Lager, which Sailor's Grave make with Bruce's brilliant grass seeds. So, um, yeah, so many great ways that you can interact and start to understand the potential for what uh, Bruce was saying. If you'd like to follow up on the two books that Bruce Pascoe mentioned in our conversation – Check out Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth by Charles Massey, as well as Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. I've spoken with both Charlie and Merlin about their respective books, and you can find these interviews on the Uncommon Sense podcast. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm feeling energised and excited because the federal election has finally been called. I've got to say it was a relief, but I was also over it at the same time when it happened on Sunday. So I now get to welcome onto the program on a very related note, Rachel Withers, who is contributing editor to The Monthly, who's joining me to talk about the beginning of the federal election campaign. Hey there, Rachel. How's it going? And are you OK? <laughs> Just, Amy. I'm glad to hear you're feeling energised because I'm exhausted. and It's only day two. <laughs> yeah, I think it's adrenaline. So I don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, but yes, I'm sure you've got your coffee machine at the ready. Yes, yeah. Well, Rachel, there's so much going on, as we always say, but, you know, now that we're in an election campaign, there is a lot of noise. So it means that we have to sort the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, in election campaign time. And I know journalists are technically tasked to do that, but some seem to do it better than others. Uh, and it certainly has even come up 
yesterday in the first day of campaigning uh, some kind of little slips that the leaders have gotten into. One in particular from Anthony Albanese dominated the headlines uh, when he had a bit of a pop quiz from a group of journalists in Tasmania who decided to start quizzing him on economic figures randomly, uh, asking what the cash rate was and also what the unemployment rate was. Um, he couldn't answer either of them. And it did bring up questions, A, why are we having pop quizzes at press conferences? B, why didn't Anthony Albanese know the unemployment figure? And C, why did media and journalists think that this was the turning point in the campaign and the nail in Albanese's coffin? So I wonder, could you reflect on these points for us? Yeah, look, I mean, on the why didn't Albanese know, I think, unfortunately, the reason this is getting so much coverage and, you know, and I even felt the need to look at it yesterday is that he just shouldn't have made a mistake like that on day one. Uh, there's going to be lots of mistakes during the campaign and, you know, this, these kind of gotcha questions have gotten everyone before. Um, but when Albanese is already uh, in the position of, of trying to prove himself as an economic manager, because rightly or wrongly, there's a perception that the coalition uh, stronger on this. You know, he he just should have probably had these two figures handy. Um, and of course, the the coalition is absolutely hammering him today over it. Um, and it was on the front page of all of the papers. But um, as you say, you know, it's not clear why we're having pop quizzes. Um, Labor's been trotting out this line today that it's um, you know it's it's not a memory test. Um, and it's pretty clear that the question is just a memory test. It's it's a question that is asked just to see if they can slip them up. You know, journalists don't need to ask a politician what their cash rate is or what the unemployment rate is. That's a fact. Um, they're there to ask them questions about policy and about, you know, the campaign and about, you know, who's going to be in their ministry, which I think is a far more important question. Um, but for some reason... Yeah, at this stage, it looks like the media are much more interested in, or some elements of the media are much more interested in asking uh, politicians to prove that they know all the numbers uh, and have them at their fingertips. Mm. And as we know, the finance minister knew exactly what the numbers were, so um, it's mm. not like no one knew. Um, but it did kind of take me back to this idea, another idea, which is not only is Labor having to prove its economic credentials, which, I mean, to be honest, the Liberals should have to be proving them because I think they've just been gifted a lot of uh, luck in recent times rather than solid economic management. Um, but one thing that is obvious is also people saying that, well, the voters don't really know Anthony Albanese. Who is he? Uh, who is Albo? And I mean, on the one hand, I'm kind of confused because he's been in Parliament for decades. Uh, so, I mean, technically we know who he is. Uh, perhaps we don't know him as intimately as we would like to know a Prime Minister or someone who might lead our country. Uh, but it is something that the Liberals are really pushing hard, which is you don't know who Albanese is. He, you know, isn't competent economically, um, you know, like he's not experienced, he hasn't been treasurer, so how could he run the country, which is also a bit of a furphy. Uh, what do you think about this attack line that they're using against Anthony Albanese and do you think it has currency? Look, I think it's it's the best one they've got at this point. Um, 
last election, they had a very unpopular opposition leader in Belshorten, um, and they could, you know, they really made it an election that was about um, Scott Morrison versus Bill Shorten. They can't do that this time. So um, saying he's unknown is kind of one of the, the salient attack lines. But, of course, the way the media keeps echoing that um, that line, rather than bothering to explain who Albanese is, shows that it's, mm. you know, the media is, is complicit in that as well. Um, and, it you know, it is just staggering that they just keep reporting this, you know, it's it's part of the reporting on the campaign as kind of a, a horse race, but that they just keep saying voters don't know who Albanese is. You know, there's there's a poll out today somewhere of some town in Tasmania where uh, a very, very small number of the voters they polled knew who he was. But it's really, you know, an indictment on that particular paper for that. Um, um, it was the Tasmanian uh, News Corp paper, I think, that they are not covering who Anthony Albanese is. So, um, mm. you know, it's 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 very difficult, I think, for Albanese to try to overcome that um, when that's the line. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, you're asking him um, to, to parrot what the uh, unemployment rate isn't also getting uh, voters any closer to understanding who Albanese is. So it's not clear why that's the question that's being asked of him in press conferences when supposedly we, we need to know who he is. Mm, it's a, an excellent point, Rachel. And uh, there was a really great little um, snapshot of a column that was written by Peter Harcher in Nines Press. Uh, and I just wanted to read it out because um, it kind of illustrates this point beautifully. It says, cheaper child care, fixing aged care, expanded renewable energy and national reconstruction fund to invest in manufacturing, a systematic approach to skills and training, an anti-corruption commission, infrastructure spending allocated by an independent agency rather than a pork wholesale operation. That and much more labour policy is already out there. You can be forgiving, forgiven for not having heard about any of it. It's Albanese's job to change that. And then, funnily enough, Jonathan Green, who's editor of Mianjin, said, question for Peter Hartcher and others in the media, is it not also the political media's job to report policy? Who is really failing here? And I feel like it's just another extension of what you've just said. Mm. Do we know Albanese? Do we know Labor's policies, which in many cases have been released a year ago? I mean, it is a really good question. Why don't we know these policies and are and is the media actually covering the policies. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've I've spoken to friends who feel like they follow politics. They have day jobs that is not watching politics. Um, and they say they don't know what Labor's policies are. And I think, well, I've sat there and, and watched a lot of press conferences and a lot of parliament. And I've, I've heard Albanese say these things and Penny Wong say these things like on our own breakfast yesterday morning. But if it doesn't get picked up, how, how else can an opposition actually get voters to hear it. I mean, mm -hmm. voters are not actually going to watch press conferences. So what else, you know, can they do really other than, I suppose, um, you know, specifically targeting voters with, with ads, which of course both parties are doing. Um, and that's something else to look at in this election. But yeah, it's sort of, that is a striking line from Peter Hutcher that it's Albanese's job to get it out there when um, it's the media's job to get it out there as well. Yeah, and the fact that Albanese's press conferences still get cut off for um, Scott do. Morrison's. Yeah, <laughs> and have been for years now. Um, 
Rachel, one thing I did want to reflect on, it just feels like tradition to do so, is the the party slogans that they come up with. And I feel that they're getting less creative as time goes on, but I wanted to get your reflections because they do have some similarities to them. Uh, we have the Liberal slogan, which is strong economy, stronger future. And then we have the Labor slogan, which is a better future. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Elections are about looking to the future because it is about who you want to run the country and, you know, run the country into the future. Um, but I wondered what your thoughts were on those those slogans. Yeah, look, it's really interesting that um, as you were about to go into those, I was going, what are they? I, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm watching, I suppose, what, what they're saying and the, the campaigns they're running. Um, and I don't think a strong economy, a stronger future is what... Um, especially Scott Morrison is saying, because um, everything he's saying at the moment is all about this choice between a, a proven, you know, government, a proven team and, a, and an unknown Labor opposition. It's all about risk and fear. It's not really about um, a better future in any sense. It's just, um, you know, you better stick with what you know. Um, whereas if you listen to the actual lines that, um, that Labor are using, it's more about um, look at all these wasted years and like, let's vote for something different. And it's all about opportunity and hope and change. Um, so it's this like risk and opportunity dichotomy between the two. So I sort of, I'm shocked to hear that is what the, the liberal party's, uh, the coalition's slogan is. I mean, it makes sense because that sounds like a, um, an election slogan, but the election itself is much more about, um, sort of let's keep things the same and let's change things. Yeah, no. And, well, one thing that is also interesting is the fact that they're saying, oh, there's an unknown entity. But, I mean, if you look at the Labor lineup, the people who are in the shadow cabinet at the moment, it's a star-studded lineup. Like, these are people who've been ministers before, Penny Wong, uh, Tony Burke, we've got Bill Shorten, Tanya Plibersek, Mark Butler, Chris Bowen, Catherine King, uh, Mark Dreyfus QC, Katie Gallagher, a former ACT uh, minister, you know, these are people who have been in government, have been ministers, uh, have been shadow ministers for many years. Like this is a, a highly competent team. You'd almost think that Labor might be better off highlighting the team. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think perhaps those of us who follow it really closely and do know um, and, you know, um, know what these people have done in the past and, and what they're capable of. But I think um, we're seeing the coalition running this, like they're trying to take this, the heat off Scott Morrison now. And they're saying, this is a battle between, you know, Peter Dutton and his opponent and Josh Frydenberg and his opponent and Karen Andrews and her opponent. But I don't think the average voter actually knows who any of these people are. Mm. Um, and so I think um, it's certainly something that the coalition wants to push is the team um, because they don't want this presidential style campaign anymore. But I think that's what it's going to be at the end of the day. And, you know, we see um, criticism now of Labor for trying to make it a, a campaign or a, a referendum on Scott Morrison's character and whatnot. But but that is ultimately, I think, what a lot of voters are going to, to come away with and what so many campaigns ultimately are, um, because this is the person... I mean, Scott Morrison did make it all about himself in the beginning. Um, and so that's that's what voters know. And he still has been. I mean, even up until the election, it's still all about his cooking and his girls and Jenny and, 
you know, we hear about his family life all the time. And I mean, he brings it into almost everything. He's brought Jenny up in press conferences so many times. Uh, you almost feel for Jenny because she kind of gets, you know, used a bit. Uh, so it's it seems like it's convenient when it's convenient and then not when it's not. Uh, and gen- journalists got a little bit excited when Anthony Albanese uh, had his partner join him at the that royal show when they were um, holding really cute chickens and uh, puppies, which, I mean, why wouldn't you go? I would go <laughs> <laughs> to that. But I found his answer really interesting that, you know, he said she's an independent woman and she'll decide when she wants to join me or not. And I thought that was quite refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I do think she is going to be an asset and she's been brought out you know, to kind of counteract the Jenny factor that that we saw with um, 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. But at the end of the day, like, it doesn't matter at all who their partners or spouses are. Um, We don't care about Jenny. No offence, Jenny. But um, (laughs) I think, yeah, people are focused on on these two men um, and and they both have obviously – strengths and weaknesses when you focus on the two men when it comes to a campaign. Um, but I think it's too hard to pull off a 180 here that this is about the team or this is about anything other than um, Scott Morrison, basically. Mm, yes, and his record, which, I mean, it should be, as many have said, a referendum on their record over the last 10 years and certainly the last three. Uh, and if you went through what they've done or haven't done, uh, I'm I'm not sure they would make it if you were being objective about performance measures, uh, certainly for any of the crises that we've been going through. And I don't think that's something that is um, particularly controversial because that's been said on both the Liberal and Labor side. We've seen so many of the Liberals criticise their own for the mismanagement of floods and fire. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, it's interesting to see. I wonder, do you think that that kind of... Uh, disunity is going to to trail off now that the campaign is in full swing? Do you think that all of those outspoken uh, people and the leaking, you know, might finally be over for Scott Morrison? Yeah, it really depends if anybody has saved something up their sleeve. Um, it felt like everyone came out in a bit of a, a rush uh, last week when we saw um, first Senator Conchetta Ferrovanti-Wells and then Michael Toke, uh, Morrison's former rival in the 2007 Cook pre-selection, and then a, a Liberal State MP, Catherine Cusack. But then it's all gone quiet again, hasn't it? Um, yeah. And, you know, I almost – I watched um, a clip from Media Watch last night that was looking at the way Sky News had covered the Toke story, and I was sort of shocked to realise that was last week because things just move so quickly mm-hmm. and it already feels like – as with all scandals, it seems you what you write it out. Um, that's what that's what both sides do. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know how much um, you know unless a new allegation comes out. Um, how much focus those allegations are going to get? I mean, Labor's going to keep hammering them, um, you know, and and people who who do, you know, commentate on elections and who are concerned about Morrison's character will keep mentioning it. But without a a new piece of news, you know, is it going to make the front page again? I'm not sure. Yeah. You just did remind me. I mean, I thought that was weeks ago too. (laughs) (laughs) And I was expecting it to be all over the papers the next day and it wasn't. There was just barely anything. And most of it was about that text message from a cabinet minister. It wasn't about what I thought actually was 
the most kind of explosive revelation out of the whole thing, which was to say that uh, Toke was essentially coerced into putting all of his numbers behind Morrison in the next round. He was basically told, this is paraphrasing what he said on the project, that uh, that they would basically make it impossible for him to get employment anywhere, that his reputation would be damaged beyond repair um, unless he shifted his votes behind Morrison. And that's how Morrison ended up getting the votes um, because that was a question that Waleed Ali asked. And, I mean, to be honest, that I find more staggering and newsworthy. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there was one other thing. Um, I also thought that the cabinet minister was one of the least interesting bits. Yeah. Um, oh, it was also that there was a, a sort of um, suggestion that the prime minister's associates are, again, backgrounding against Toke. There's yes. some really unsavoury um, suggestions about his links now. Um, and Toke said, you know, um, I don't know if Morrison is behind this. I don't know if he knows. It's often a thing with Morrison and backgrounding. Are people doing it on his behalf? Um, you know, d is he kept in the dark? But um, Toke has been told by very, like, senior journalists, he says, that this is happening again to him. Um, so, you know, it's, it's another instance of this backgrounding, this really nasty political behaviour Um and yeah, I think I think that there was a lot, way too much focus on the the text message from a cabinet minister because you know we all want to figure out who it is and it's a mystery. But um, ultimately, it's it's what Morrison is doing or or those close to him are doing to Toke all over again that mm. that really matters. Yes, well, I mean that is bullying essentially, mm. <laughs> um, which we've all he been discussing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, and that does go down to a leader's character, doesn't it? Um, and whether he would condone that type of behaviour because it doesn't sound like he came out to, you know, talk about that in any way or address it. Um, we certainly wouldn't have found out about it in the media because it wasn't being reported on as we've just been reflecting uh, in a way that is kind of reflective of the true revelations. But I hope that um, Toke does have a reprieve and um, he's not harassed again because it sounds like he's been through a hideous time. Um I also wanted to pick up on the news poll, and I know there are a range of other polls going around at the moment. Uh, we did see on April 10 um, another news poll come out, and the two-party preferred has narrowed once more. So uh, it was 45 to 55. Then a week ago it was uh, 46 to 54. Now it's 47, the LNP, to 53, ALP. And there is a little bit of movement as well on preferred PM and approve, disapprove, et cetera. Um, this kind of seems like a slight trend that the gap is now narrowing. Um, but I wonder, Rachel, I know polls are really something that you have to take with a grain of salt, but it is something that people look at perhaps in more of a totality and they look at it with uh, multiple polls in mind. So I wonder, did you have any thoughts around, you know, how both parties are performing across the polls at the moment? Yeah, I think the thing to reflect on maybe with that that trend, you see the lines coming, they're still pretty far apart, but mm. um, that, that closing of the gap is that's sort of what happened last election as well, that Labor was in this, um, you know, dominant position at the start, um, not as dominant as as they're starting now, but that gap did close over the course of the election campaign. Um, 
it didn't, you know, people still thought right until the end that Labor was going to win, but um, that gap closed and over the course of the campaign, and that's what Morrison is clearly hoping to do again. He set a pretty long campaign for himself here, um, 41 days, not the longest ever, but he clearly hopes that he can use the time and the the marathon to wear Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party down. Um, and so, yeah, I, I suppose they'd have been pretty happy with that um, that opening news poll for the campaign because it's the line is now um, for Labor, it's on the way down, and for the coalition, it's on the way up, which is what they'd want to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rachel, I know that there are you know different kind of competing agendas that are going to come up with the leaders visiting different seats. Obviously, marginal seats would be, you know, the key focus here. Uh, But we are going to be seeing a kind of flurry of announcements of of different things. And, uh, you know, I'm already looking at the headlines at the moment and we're on to the economy at the moment with uh, Morrison pledging 1.3 million jobs, which I'm not sure how you quite promised that. (laughs) Uh, but you know, what are you, some of your recommendations for people listening who aren't like us and who do not follow politics to the tragic level that we do? How do you recommend they engage in this uh, political campaign to a maintain their sanity, but also to actually get an understanding of uh, what the parties are about, and you know, to get past the the media noise, which does seem to be, as we've said, quite biased against uh, the opposition and obviously the others. I'm sure, like the Greens and and minor parties and uh, independents. Yeah, um, like the first thing I can think of to do is give my column a plug. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I write a daily column that comes out every day at four o'clock that tries to look at um, at what's happened and what, what moments matter. Um, and I'd also probably recommend the Guardian's coverage at the moment. Um, yeah. They've, they've um, done a bit of an explainer about what they're doing and they're, um, they've, they're going to be doing, you know, close political coverage with, with reporters and they're going to mostly stay off the campaign buses and go to the seats that matter and, and look at the issues there. Um, so I think if you want to, you know, not follow the, um, the sort of, headline campaign that's a good way to look at it too um yeah I think you know this is going to be one on a seat by seat level the the leaders know it that's why they are currently in marginal seats um and so it's being aware of what those seats are um you know a lot of a lot of outlets have done um some good seat by seat the nine papers did a good like 20 seats to watch as well so I think getting across those um you know, and the independent campaigns too, because obviously, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they're really putting a torch up to the Liberals in many ways. Yeah, so those are those are generally listed in the seats to watch. So you're watching what's happening with, you know, the Dave Sharmas and Tim Wilsons, the the moderate Liberals who might have their seats taken off them um, by independents, but then um, watching the seats, the the Labor Liberal swing seats, um, you know, in Tasmania, which is very important. Um, you know, generally a party needs to win at least one uh, seat in Tasmania if it's going to win. Um, you know, there'll be a, quite a few seats in New South Wales um, and, and Queensland uh, is also one to watch Western Australia. I think uh, Victoria is pretty much the only one not to watch. Uh, yeah. there's, like, there's like one or there's two seats here. Um, but, yeah, it's it's getting across those seats. Um, and, um, yeah, it, that's where it's going to be won or lost. You know, that Labor could have a massive swing towards it, but if it doesn't, take place um, in the seats it has to win, then it's not going to happen. 
Yeah. Well, I've got to give a shout out to Karangamite um, because they're going to be getting a lot of ScoMo visits. And uh, there's also Chisholm is another one um, here in Victoria that'll be one to watch. But as you say, uh, Victoria didn't really get much infrastructure funding in the no. budget <laughs> because of that very reason. Uh, well, that's what people say is the reason um, for that oversight um, with Victoria. Uh, I just wanted to finish off on a slogan I actually liked because uh, I thought that might be, I don't know, a bit different, um, and that is independent candidate for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel, who's running against Tim Wilson, a Liberal there. Uh, she launched her campaign, which was massive on the weekend in terms of crowd size. Um, I know I sound like Trump there, but it really was a very big <laughs> crowd. Uh, and her slogan was, same isn't safe, which I thought was a perfect counterpoint to what the Liberals are trying to sell at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've I really am enjoying watching Tim Wilson try to uh, rebrand himself um, when he is very much same. Uh, so mm. that is that is going to be a fun one to watch, I think. Yeah. Well, Rachel, I do hope people check out your column because it does definitely give a very good insight into what we should be paying attention to. Uh, I totally agree. And that's why we get this opportunity to chat with you as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, illuminate things for us. And I hope that the rest of the week goes okay for you and uh, thanks for all the work you're doing. Thanks Amy and thank you for thanks for the chat. It's always good to step back and, and take a look at it all with you. Yeah, no, same. It's a total pleasure. <laughs> thanks Rachel. Bye. I've just been chatting with Rachel Withers who's com- contributing editor to the monthly and you can check out her column The Politics which is also now read out in audio form through a podcast as well so you can access it in two different modes. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.